When I moved back to Amherst, Nova Scotia after 15 years away, something had changed. Like many other towns, our local businesses and business people have been overwhelmed by large corporations and monopolies. This hurt the spirit of our communities. We lost our autonomy, our self-reliance, and our hope. So join me as I learn more about where we are now, how we got here, and what we can do to take back our communities. I'm Andrew Cameron, and Monopolies Killed My Hometown. Welcome to episode 22 of Monopolies Killed My Hometown. So today's episode, we're moving back into the Royal Commission on Price Spreads report from 1934. And this time we're going to look at the section on industry. So I did a number of episodes on the situation of the retail industry, especially the impacts of mass buyers, you know, chain stores and department stores. So you can listen to those previously. I'll put some links in the show notes. But in this episode, we're going to look right into the investigation the commission did into industry. So that's manufacturing and production, not farming, not retail, not those things. Uh, they do another chapter with a deeper dive into primary producers, farmers, fishers, growers, those sorts of things. But if you're just starting out with the podcast now, just a brief summary. So the Royal Commission on Price Spreads, this report came about because in 1934, the price of bread increased significantly, but the amount paid to farmers decreased. There were a lot of complaints because we're in, again in the middle of the depression. So the federal government wanted to find out what was going on. So they created this Royal Commission to investigate it. And the TLDR of this report is they thought they're going to have to write many reports because of all the industries and all the complaints they were getting. But as they started to investigate, they found that the underlying issue behind every complaint was consolidated corporate power. And so that's the theory that I have today. Behind all of our problems is monopolies and consolidated corporate power. I'm reviewing this old report to see what there is that we that is similar and what we can learn from that to apply to today. So like I said, I looked at retail before and now I want to move to industry. Sort of two reasons. First being that, you know, in the 70s and 80s, the focus of antitrust or anti-combines or competition policy to a consumer welfare standard and prices only really flattens out people and removes so many of the other roles that we play in our lives, right? And so I see discussion about industry brings different roles that we have in the world, brings those back into the discussion. And second, Amherst was a booming manufacturing center around the turn of the 20th century, even into the middle of the 20th century. Amherst was known as Busy Amherst, you know, and there still is some manufacturing in town now, but we don't have the same local manufacturing now that we did at one point. And so, like I said before, is I want to look back and see what the commission found in the 30s and see what applies to today and what's similar and what we could maybe do about it. And so this is the introduction, and then they go into specific industries. And I'm really looking forward to those because there's some fascinating historical artifacts and historical points and context to look at. So the first thing when we talk about industry and, and combines and antitrust, like I said before, in the 70s and 80s, the focus got switched to consumer welfare, which was basically condensed every person into a consumer. The most important thing that you can do is consume, shop, buy, those sorts of things. And it started to bring this theory that the only thing that matters to people are prices. But it removed the fact that, like for me, I'm a father, husband, uncle, son, business owner, consumer, community member. I play hockey. I like going to start golfing again. That I have so many other roles that I have. And people can even more than that. Church, mosque, synagogue member, lions, other community organizations, artist, painter, author, all of these things. 
things. And it just basically eliminates, again, most importantly, wage earner, producer, farmer, retailer, merchant, all of these things. It just says, basically, those are not important. We don't even want to think about those anymore. All we care about is you as a consumer. And I want to start pushing back on that solely in the fact that I am not just a consumer. I find when you stop and think about it, if you make my only value as my ability to spend money, that's pretty bleak, right? And spending money is fun. Like, you know, when you can go out and buy stuff and do things, that's a lot of fun. But so is playing a game with your daughter. So is putting on community theater. So is, you know, growing a good harvest, haying, playing with your dog, spending time with friends and family. Those things, one, the foundation which your ability to spend is built upon, but also are more fulfilling as a person. And so I want to bring that up and I want to talk about the industry in this context because we need to bring that well-roundedness back into our discussion, the antitrust, anti-combines, competition policy, that it shouldn't just be about consumer welfare because we are not just consumers. So before I dive into the introductory section, and I mentioned this previously about quote-unquote busy Amherst, I want to talk about that a bit because like I said, Amherst was a manufacturing center around the turn of the 20th century, probably even into the mid 20th century. You know, in the episode I did about the newspapers, I talked about how my grandfather was a labor leader at the Canadian car factory that was making airplane parts for the Canadian Air Force in World War II. Family story is my great grandfather, who was a tailor, also worked at a pants factory in town and that ended up making uniforms for the war effort as well. And so looking back, I think one of the reasons that Amherst was this manufacturing hotbed is our location. You know, we're the first town coming into Nova Scotia and we have the railroad running right through town. And so really up until air travel really took off, trains and then shipping were the only way to move large amounts of people and goods. And Amherst was on the path between the rest of the country and the port of Halifax, which is one of the largest deep water ports. You know, and at that point in time, Moncton, New Brunswick, wasn't quite the established city that it is today. You know, so in looking back at the busy Amherst days, we had, you know, Christie's Trunk and Baggage Company with the Amherst Boot and Shoe Company with Houston's Wool Mill, Rhodes and Curry Company, which manufactured train cars and then became part of the Canadian Car Factory. We had plants that manufactured airplane parts. We had a piano factory. Those were our big manufacturing businesses. You know, we also had other manufacturing companies like Rob's Engineering, and it did start in this t- same sort of time frame as a tinsmith. But by the middle of the 20th century, Rob's engineering was purchased by Dominion Bridge Company and they moved into manufacturing steel I-beams. And so the advantage of having the train coming through town is Rob's engineering actually had their own little sort of branch that went off the main line right into their plant. So they could just load the product up and send it off. And that's one of the advantages of it. So can't skip over the disadvantages of large manufacturing, especially some of these sorts of things because they create massive environmental problems. You know, and like I said, I don't think the Rob's engineering site was as bad as the Sydney tar ponds, but in the 1980s, the town built a baseball complex over top of it all. We had actually built our office next to the site and we had to do a more in-depth environmental assessment because of that. And there were a couple of spots we came to that were uh, pretty scary. I was a little bit nervous about those results. And so like when I look back, even when I was growing up in the 80s, 90s, we had a lot of locally owned and managed manufacturing businesses. You know, we had a window and door plant. We had a license plate manufacturer. Uh, There was a battery plant. There was aerospace and airplane part manufacturers, plastic bags, dairy plant and battery plant, like I mentioned before. I mean, I really think there's a fascinating book or history for someone to write about the history of industry in Amherst. I mean, I'm skimming over a lot of details and specifics because I want to cover a lot in like 20 minutes. And so for me, like in my mind, For a town like Amherst, manufacturing and industry is a key driver of local wealth creation and 
community, right? Because first, I mean, manufacturing requires a large labor force. And that large labor force with proper union representation generates a lot of high-paying manufacturing jobs. Large manufacturing plants also require higher-paying managerial and administrative jobs. And all these jobs have such economic multiplier effect. You know, these people will then spend their money at local stores, local services, local places, local restaurants. So there's a greater chance of the local retail scenes surviving. And it becomes sort of a positive feedback loop up or flywheel. I mean, the other thing is the manufacturing also brings new money into a community. You know, whether the products are exported out of the country or just to another part of Canada, it's like a form of exporting for the community. Whereas, you know, if we get into services, that's like money, you know, circling through the community, which is always good and always positive, but we do want more and new money coming into the local economy. And the other thing is for me, locally owned manufacturing companies, one, they keep the profits in the community. And like I talked about in the retail section, the owners of these plants, you know, they have a vested interest in the success of the community and they may even take on a lot of the different leadership roles, right? And so as I'm talking about this, think, you know, as you're listening, think about the community you grew up in or where your grandparents grew up in or the neighborhood in larger cities. Think about it in this context and think about the different industries as you're going along. Think about that. Let me know what there is that resonates with you as we're working through this section in this whole chapter. Let's get back to the introduction because the the introductory section of the report, the commission found that the problems for businesses and industry come from three main issues, growth of the corporate form of organization, development of large scale production, and three to quote, a widespread but not universal tendency toward at least quasi monopolistic concentration. And so the commission found that these three developments had severe consequences for wage earners, primary producers, the consumer, and even the state itself. And the commission looked at the growth of corporate organization in another chapter, specifically looking at sort of the financial implications of that. And so this is the point that I made before is the commission knew that consolidation monopolization of industries maybe brings up lowers prices for consumers and benefits that way, but has severe consequences for wage earners, primary producers, well, and even the state itself. If you want to understand that one, all you got to do is find the book, The Hell's Cartel, all about the IG Farben consolidation holding company in Germany in the 1930s. So there's a whole discussion on the state to have as well. And so the commission had a whole chapter on corporate form of organization. So they skipped over that one, but they really delved into the last two points by making comparison between large scale production and combinations. And so the key is that these feel very similar, but they're extremely different. And I think the first person that I heard was Matt Stoller really differentiate the two of them. And he pointed out that they are different, but the sleight of hand that's used by big business and people that are pro-mergers is they try to convince people that they're the same and that they use the benefits that come from large-scale productions to justify combinations. And we'll get more into that as well. So, But the thing is, because they're both presented, like I said, as generating efficiencies and economies of scale. The difference is that large-scale production is about operational efficiencies and productive efficiencies. Whereas combinations are about legal efficiencies, administrative efficiencies, efficiencies and economies of scale. So I think it's easiest to think about this in the context of like a specific example. So it's going to be pretty simplified, but it's a good way to get it. It's more efficient for a farmer to own and farm one 10 acre piece of land compared to 10 smaller one acre pieces of land. 
So the large 10 acre piece of land is large scale production, right? The farmer can have a larger tractor, have all their equipment right there. You know, they don't have to travel around between all the different pieces. It's more efficient for the farmer that way. If you have cows or animals or livestock, you can have more on that piece of land. You know, you would need fewer fences, those sorts of things, right? So that's one large 10 acre piece versus 10 small different ones. That's an example of large scale productions. Another example, like a hundred unit 10 story apartment building is a more efficient use of land in the downtown of a city compared to a 30 unit three story building. Not only that, but it is also more efficient to operate. You know, there's one roof, one foundation, one parking lot, one office can look after the whole building. There's one sewer line, one water line, one superintendent can do the whole building. Safety of three 33 unit apartment buildings, same number of units, you need three superintendents. You have three water lines, you have three roofs, three, right? It triples them. So there is more efficiencies in a larger building like that. And so the large scale productions applies like for manufacturing plants too, right? A large manufacturing plant can produce more products efficiently and at the lower cost, right? So for example, like take bowling, making airplanes. You want to build that whole airplane in one facility in one spot. You can manufacture all the pieces somewhere else and bring them in, but you want the one spot you need a facility large enough to be able to manufacture that airplane. And so now with all of this, the commission points out the downside of plants increasing in size is that they become more difficult to manage and operate. And to me, it, I think it also amplifies the consequences of any mistakes, right? So again, see the issues of the Boeing 737 MAX. And so what the commission pointed out is the scarcity of managerability can actually limit growth. Because if you don't have the managerial level to run the plant, you can't build quality products. And that may have been what was happening in the 60s. Like you think of the car industry with Honda and Toyota and Japanese companies coming in with a revolutionary way to manufacture products. They had a better way to make their products. Going back to this, the commission points out that large scale manufacturing plants do gain economies of scale. That in a fair and competitive economy, small manufacturing businesses can stay in business by focusing on what they do well compared to large companies, right? Which is innovation, uh, research and development, customization, quick turnarounds, quick decision makings. Once you add in the layers of management, you add in more bureaucracy that may not be in a smaller plant where the owner is a manager and operating close by with everybody else. And so I read this as the commission saying that we need both small and large scale manufacturing. And so in my mind, having both small and large scale manufacturing businesses also creates a much more stable and resilient economy and country. I mean, there's a reason we have the saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And I think in previous episodes, I've talked about this, that manufacturing has gotten so consolidated that, you know, two years ago, there was a big power outage in Texas, which shut down the one plant that makes a specific polymer that goes in paints and plastics. So once that happened, I had to pay more for styrofoam and paint. So looking back, according to the commission, the large scale production refers to the scale of producing units, right? We got that combination refers to economies of scale at the managerial level or the management level. And so in this case, the commission is generous to combinations, you know, in that the commission grants, there are efficiencies gained through managerial and marketing economies, right? For example, two medium sized plants may need two bookkeepers, but one larger plant may only need one bookkeeper. Back to my previous example, three 33 unit buildings need three superintendents. You know, whereas one large building may need only one. So there are efficiencies gained through combinations. The commission also specified that, you know, combinations can also eliminate costs that come from needing to compete with others, right? So for example, two plants, both making sneakers, 
both companies need salespeople to cover the same territory. If they combined, then they would only need one salesperson for the whole territory, right? And that's the extent where the commission stops being kind to combinations. They are still very kind to large-scale production, efficiencies, and economies, but not to combinations. The commission then says that combinations are also motivated by the desire not only to realize such desirable economies, also to achieve monopolistic power to limit production and thus obtain monopoly-level profits. So this is them saying that, sure, there are these efficiencies gained, but really what they want to do is get to the level where they're able to dominate and influence prices so that they don't have to compete as much and are able to start extracting monopoly level profits. The commission also says, quote, combinations, if based on sound economic considerations, may tend to increase efficiency, but the benefits are often not distributed to the public in the form of lower prices or the employees in form of higher wages. And third point that the commission makes about combinations are, quote, monopolistic combinations, further by the protection of relatively inefficient members from outside competition, by the suppression or delayed introduction of new inventions and similar policies may often obstruct general industrial progress. So in the commission's opinion, there are many positives gained from combinations, but the downsides of them far, far outweigh the potential benefits. The other thing that I think with this is... The commission didn't make this point directly. They talked about it in the context of the large-scale production and the managerial issues, right? That they were saying at some point there's a shortage of managerial staff to effectively run the plant. I think we're seeing that happen on the combination level too. When you start combining all these companies together, you end up with this large organization that needs to be managed. And again, I think it was Matt Stoller that made this point that sometimes organizations can just get so big they're not able to be managed. And I think you can start to see that you can argue that if you have a software company or a social networking company and you inadvertently foment a genocide in a country, maybe you're too big to be managed, right? Maybe your company just shouldn't be that big. If you manufacture airplanes and you can't effectively build a good airplane anymore, perhaps your company is just too big, right? And we see this, like so many of the largest mergers just don't seem to work out well. Like you go back to the late nineties, AOL Time Warner, that was a disaster for everybody. You know, there was another one just happened now. HBO Discovery, like that one spun off. That didn't work. Like so many of these big mergers don't actually work. And according to the commission, like even if they did work, they weren't going to have any benefits to the individual public and individual people. And so this is the thing that it's important to keep in mind that they're different. There are efficiencies in large scale productions, but those are different than potential efficiencies in combinations. And that's the sleight of hand. And that's what Matt Stoller was talking about, that everybody gets and understands that there are gains to be made from large scale production, larger plants. There are efficiencies to be gained that way. But then the sleight of hand was to all of a sudden transfer those benefits over to combinations when we don't have the same benefits from those. And so we convince people that, yes, you know, bigger manufacturing plants, bigger apartment buildings are more efficient. So therefore, bigger businesses should be efficient. But it's not the case, and that's not true. And one of the other things that they talked about, the commission talked about in this case, is that monopolistic combinations can actually delay general industrial progress. And so there's a couple of things I think with that, and this is what gets me when we talk about innovation and driving businesses forward and companies forward. Kodak, Kodak Eastman is always, in my mind, sort of the example that's brought up. And they're like, yeah, see, Kodak, they were so big and cumbersome. They actually invented digital photography, but then... They weren't able to do anything with it and then they failed, right? So like I go back to it and I go, well, look, why are we praising and thinking that the largest companies will be the ones that innovate and come up with great ideas? I think kind of go back to like GE was very innovative at one point and Bell Labs was innovative, but those were very specific cultures that were 
created and wanted to be fostered. And there also had to be that way because the economy was so competitive. They had to keep competing to stay ahead of somebody else coming to take their lunch. Like, and again, I keep going back to Cory Doctorow. Well, and Matt Solar, but Cory Doctorow in this case, he keeps making the point that he says Google or Alphabet basically invented one and a half great products. Google search, which was phenomenal, and Gmail, which was a Hotmail clone. So he gives them half a point for that. Everything else Google has done, they've bought. And I think like when I think about it, Google has done an excellent job of rolling products out at scale. Android, again, Gmail search, Google Docs, you know, different things like this. But they bought all those other ones. The ad network, they bought them and monopolized them. And Cory Doctorow also talks about there's a through line from IBM to Google and Facebook, right? And it's basically the US FTC was suing IBM, I mean, problems with the suit, like 10 years, 12 years in the 60s. And so IBM was sort of chastened and, and uncertain. So when they created the personal computer, IBM didn't want to produce the hardware and the software. So because of that, they went out and they found another company, Microsoft, to create DOS for them to use. Whereas if they hadn't been sort of chastened by the antitrust laws, IBM's previous approach would have been to just keep making mainframes because that's what they're dominating. Why would you want to create the personal computer to then compete against yourself when you could just keep making mainframes, right? So then Microsoft produced DOS, started growing from that, then produced Word in the Office Suite and Windows. And then in the mid 90s, as the internet started coming around, as Microsoft was dominating the operating system and office suites, they wanted to kill Netscape as the internet started coming along and bundling Internet Explorer in, making it default. And so the FTC sued Microsoft at that point. And so this again, I'll put a link to Cory Doctorow's story all about this, but it was saying that sort of chastened Bill Gates in Microsoft. So in the early 2000s, when you know Google started Google search, Microsoft was afraid of the previous antitrust suit. So they didn't basically go in and buy Google or put them out of business. Right? So it allowed Google to get a foothold. It allowed Facebook to get a foothold. But then we stopped really enforcing antitrust on these companies so that Google didn't feel that they were restricted or threatened. So what did they do? They just started buying everything, you know, and dominating the ad stack, right? Same with Facebook, right? They just started doing these. And so then they became these giant companies, but that you can argue were built on effective antitrust enforcement. And for me in Canada, I think about this again too. I mean, we've just seen the Roger Shaw merger finally approved going through whatever. This is a combination. This is not a large scale production gain, right? So in a lot of the, the arguments that they made for it were using sort of the large scale production efficiencies and gains that way, you know, well, going this way, we can invest more in 5G tech and advanced tech and those sorts of things, right? That was a lot of the arguments, but they use that as cover to try to justify, well, the managerial savings, you know, those sorts of things, but not to talk about the problems with combinations. And we've forgotten what happens with combinations or as a society, we have accepted, okay, yeah, this works for manufacturing plants. Therefore it should just work for businesses. And it's just not true. One, it doesn't work. And even if it did, there's so many other negative side effects on all those other roles that we play as a wage earner, as a primary producer, as a community member, as family, all these ones, these combinations that we let go and let happen, one, don't give us lower prices, which they're supposed to, but then negatively impact us in every other single role we play. To 
to bring it back to Amherst, I talked about the manufacturing history and I can think of for the last 25, 30 years, Amherst has had the goal of increasing the industry. We need more businesses coming to Amherst. We need more manufacturing in Amherst. And as the combinations have increased, we've had to go out and try to attract them. But as businesses combined, every community has had to go out and attract them. So we're all competing for the same few businesses and they end up with all the power. When I think back to Amherst, the businesses that have the most impact on Amherst, or I think some of the most positive impact on Amherst were locally owned businesses, especially manufacturing. And so what I want to see is one, us identify the difference between manufacturing, scales of manufacturing and combinations, like be able to separate those out. And I'd like us to get back to a fair economy and an open economy so that people in Amherst and in smaller communities like this can start their own manufacturing business and have a chance of succeeding. Because that local manufacturing business brings so much more to our community than a branch of another large combination. So that's what I'd like to see happening. Check back in a couple of weeks. We're gonna go into the first industry that the commission really gets into. One that's thankfully not quite as relevant now as it was before, but we're gonna look at the tobacco industry. So again, if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, tell someone else. What are you doing at small town after the movie show through? A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.